0: Welcome to Book to Where Two Guys Tell You About the Books They're Reading. I'm Rob Olson,
1: and I'm Olivia Uh This is a little bonus episode. I'd mentioned that this was likely going to happen, but uh, an interview tonight with Paul Tremblay. Um, he is the author of the Bram Stoker Award and Locus Award-winning *The Cabin at the End of the World*, winner of the British Fantasy Award for *Disappearance at Devil's Rock* and Bram Stoker Award slash Massachusetts Book Award winning A Head Full of Ghosts, um, which is in development with focus features. He's also the author of the novels The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and Floating Boy, and The Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which is co-written by another one of our favorites, Stephen Graham Jones. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and numerous years' best anthologies. He is the co-editor of four anthologies, including Creatures, 30 Years of Monster Stories with John Langan, Paul is on the board of directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. He lives outside of Boston, Massachusetts, has a master's degree in mathematics and has no uvula. Um,
0: you know what? The whole time you were reading that, I was trying to think of uh, some part of the bio I could I could make a joke about. And just nothing, nothing hits me. So I'm sure, I'm
1: sure over the course of this interview, many things will come up that you'll <laughs> want to make jokes about. And I strongly, strongly suggest you refrain. All lame, non-joking because we're not joking, right? Um, (laughs) Aside, um, there is a little bit of spoilers in this interview. So um, in a second, Rob is going to tell you at what minute mark you can uh, start skipping and what minute mark you can come back. I don't think it's heavily, heavily spoilery. Like, I don't think it'll ruin your experience of the book, but I am a purist. I wouldn't want to hear what we had to say before I read the book.
0: Yeah, in retrospect, um, I feel like that the stuff that we discussed, not going to ruin the experience of reading the book, but it is nice to know. So if you're concerned about uh, spoilers for Survivor Song and possibly other works by Paul Tremblay, uh, between the 19 minute 30 second mark to about the 31 minute mark in this episode, there are some discussion that have to do with uh, characters and things that happen in the book that might spoil mildly some of the story of Survivor Song, but also um, dips into some of his other work as well. Not something that's going to ruin the experience of reading the book, but it's 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 enough where we wanted to make uh, a point of pointing it out to you.
1: All right, so now you know where you need to skip if you need to skip, um, but don't skip anything else because this is all great stuff. Here is our interview with Paul Tremblay.
0: Paul, thanks a lot for joining us again on the podcast. We didn't wait four years this time. We actually kind of like made it a little quicker, <laughs> but uh, we always love having you on, so thank you.
2: Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be back.
1: So um, off air, before we, we started our official recording, we talked a little bit about synopsis um, and synopsis writing. So I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give us the synopsis for Survivor Song in your own words.
2: Oh, boy. Um, so I, I sort of, when we were talking, semi-joked, but not really, um, That it, it usually gets presented to me first. I don't know if that's the, the same way with every publisher, but uh, um, I can't remember if this one, uh, I can't remember if my editor wrote a s- summary or a synopsis first and then asked me to you know approve it kind of thing. But anyway, um, I guess I'll just summarize the first part of the book, which is generally what I do. I'm already rambling. I'm only a half a beer in. This is not good news. <laughs> um, so uh, Survivor Song, it, it opens sort of in the middle of... Uh, sort of the beginning of an outbreak of a super rabies virus, uh, in the Boston area. So it's not really a pandemic. It's really sort of for the moment localized to the Massachusetts area. Um, in the very first chapter, or really it's even the prelude, um, uh, Natalie Larson is eight and a half months pregnant. She's in her early thirties. Um, and she and her husband, Paul, um, (laughs) uh, I guess we, we may talk about that later, but she and her husband, Paul, are attacked by, you know, someone who's been infected with the virus. And Paul is killed and she is bitten, uh, which is obviously bad news because it, it's, it's, it's essentially the rabies virus, but it acts. But its um, rate of infection is really sped up to hours as opposed to weeks or sometimes even less than an hour. Um, so the main part of the novel is Natalie uh, calls her friend and goes to her friend, uh, Dr. Romola Sherman's house. And really, the, the rest of the book is four to six hours in real time of Romola and Natalie trying, uh, trying to get help, just trying to navigate, um, you know, navigate sort of what's breaking down and what's not really working uh, in, in Massachusetts. And, either, and I'd say, unfortunately, it mirrors kind of what we're going through now. So how's that for a rambly summary?
1: It was uh, I think it it sounded like like us trying to talk about the book. It was so hard <laughs> because of that. so I mean we'll get into that a little bit. but like, yeah. as you said, four to six hours, it seems like it's hard to go too deep into a story that's that short on the clock. So, but you know, <clears throat> of all the names you could have picked, I'm just curious if there was a reason. Like you literally could have picked any name for, for the for the husband and, and yet you went right. with Paul. Livius well what is could there. The is names, there yeah. yeah, exactly. You could've named him Livius, but you didn't. You went with Paul. <laughs> and I'm just curious yeah. if there was anything behind that.
2: Well, I will point out that this Paul is only about five nine and I'm six four. So definitely not the same person. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's like reflecting sort of a self destructive uh <laughs> impulse that is increasing with each book you know i always say that half jokingly but it's like every time i write something it's like ah, i could be done now you know and i fantasize about laying on the couch and watching all the netflix that i can't watch um <laughs> but then I, I go back to the book so yeah i don't know i mean it was definitely when i put it in there i had a little chuckle to myself and honestly sometimes i don't know this is my eighth novel and honestly there are things that i put into books just to entertain myself i mean Part of it is part of the quote unquote magic is fooling myself into thinking, oh, this is a little bit different than it was last time. So, I mean, so I think a lot of authors do that. You can tell when you're reading stuff that are, oh, yeah, that that made that author laugh a little bit, you know, just for fun. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it was for me. It was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to call him Paul. He, he lives for like 10 pages.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting because um, so friend of the podcast, David James Keaton. And a long time ago, talking to us, um, he has a tendency to name his characters Jack. And, mm. um, he explained that it was his way of not having to name a character, um, was just name it Jack because it's like the most generic kind of, and it also kind of, I think, jokingly refers to like masturbation. So that was his, <laughs> that's his kind of lazy approach. So everybody's got their reason for doing oh. it. Um, his just happens to yeah. be, um, super lazy
2: <laughs> no i mean i can totally that's a part of it like even in this even survivor song a lot of the characters especially like without getting spoilery like toward the end when it's just you're naming a bunch of different people they're all named after people i know like there's a brief appearance of laird and john r- referencing my two good friends john Langen and laird baron yep um mm-hmm. You know, I name after like publicist and editor and stuff like that. So no, I, I totally get that part. Of it. It's just kind of fun. Again, yeah, it's almost like you do it and you're like, ah, you imagine because they're going to be forced to read this book anyway. You sort of imagine <laughs> their either bemused or annoyed reaction when they read that.
1: It's how you know if they read it or not.
2: Exactly. Like if you don't if you don't
1: hear about it, then you know they're like, oh man, your last book was great. And you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah.
2: You that, exactly. That shit. Yeah. It's the writers' friendship test. <laughs> so
1: one of the things that I think we both found striking, and, and I want to clarify for anybody who didn't listen to the review or hasn't read the book, I mean, the, I'm assuming you had this book in the bag a year ago, right? So long, long pre-COVID. That first part was frighteningly accurate on, you know, hospitals being overwhelmed, lack of training, lack of personal protective equipment. As I, as I said, I, I hadn't heard the word. Uh, until it was on the news four months ago right ppe but it appears in your book so uh, like uh, i guess i'm like what kind of research led to something that was that accurate when something similar as far as uh, an outbreak actually happened
2: right you know so the the ironic part for me just personally is like research is my least favorite part of writing (laughs) To the point where like I try to avoid stories that need like a lot of research. And I know there are plenty of like brilliant writers who are the total opposite. Like I know that Stuart Ornan and Alma Katsu and um, Jim Shepard, if you've heard Jim stuff, like they they write because they love to research. And I'm totally the opposite. So for this book, I you know, I got the idea for it in July 2018. Um, and I finished the first you know, I finished the draft I turned into my publisher in August of 2019. And finished all my edits October of 2019. So, you know, at least a few months before, you know, the coronavirus was a thing um, at all. Um, And so for research, you know, the rabies part of it, I had sort of weirdly already read uh, like a giant book on rabies called Rabid. That's like the history of rabies. Um, I had listened to the audio book of that maybe a couple of years prior to writing the book. I don't know. It's just as a horror writer, it seemed like an interesting book. To listen to when I take my dog for walks again, maybe that's a little <laughs> ironic. <here>. Um, <laughs> but all the like the medical stuff, um, I knew that I did not. There were two things, so I knew I was messing around with the zombie sort of trope, right? Even though I they're not really zombies, I guess. But there are two things I knew I, I wanted to not do. One is I didn't want to write a story that was you know 700 pages, cast of thousands, third person, jumping to all point of views there's nothing wrong with those stories. I just feel like they've been done a lot of times and been done really well. So I figured my way to make the story a little bit different would be to have it really tightly focused over a short period of time and stick with two main characters. Um, and I also didn't want to, cause I feel like we've seen it too many times. Like I didn't want this to be the end of the world. I, you know, it's not a spoiler. I say it at one point in the book, that this isn't the end of Massachusetts, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, so again I feel like too too many of these kind of stories almost like lovingly almost fetishistically describe the end of the world. You know and I didn't want that either. So anyway, um but I knew I needed so to do that I felt like I I want to make it a smaller story in terms of time. I needed to not focus on the national response but what would the the smaller quote you know local response as opposed to smaller like what would one hospital in the suburb of Boston what would that look like? So my, my, sister, my younger sister, she's 11 months younger than me, um, we're very close. And, she, you know, she lives close by um, my sister, Erin. And so I was like, hey, can you help me with research on this? Uh, and, I, you know, I told her the story. And she actually got me and she's, she works at a, one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. Um, you know, and she got me access to, like, their generalized emergency plans of, uh, of a pandemic, what it would look like and stuff like that. Um the meat of the stuff that went in there, you know, the first time I ever heard of PPE, um, you know, we went into de- she went into detail with me what they went through in like the terrifying two weeks in 2014 during the Ebola outbreak. Um, yeah. Now obviously the outbreak was bigger in, it was huge in Africa, but we had a few patients here and a couple of nurses got sick in like Texas or something like that. Um, and we actually have one, I don't think he would, I don't think he actually had Ebola. He was suspected of it, or maybe he had it. But there was one in in the Boston area. So her hospital is like, all right, you know, we're going to be like one of the main hospitals that takes patients if this really starts going. And they sent my sister and her other you know nurse coworkers the next day. It's like, all right, here's our plan, <laughs> and it sent them a, a PDF and a PowerPoint, like a fifteen minute PowerPoint. And it was, you know, it was appallingly, la- it was appallingly <laughs> lacking in like important details. And even they said, you know, we're not going to have enough hazmat suits for everybody. You know, and this is, you know, it was probably pages that said this, but to, to, to shorten it, you know, we're not going to have enough hazmat suits or personal protection equipment. You just going to like double gown up <laughs> and duct tape, like duct tape your wrists, you know, and, and rightly my sister and her, fr- her coworkers were freaking out, um, and there's a there's a scene in the book where Romola is texting back and forth with other nurses discussing what's going on, and that text exchange is pretty much the exchange that my sister and her friends had talking about Ebola, you know. And I reworked it obviously, but you know where they're talking about PPE. And the thing that always struck me was, you know, they're funny, dark humor pissed off, scared, but by the end of the text chain, they're still like, yeah, but I'm still, you know, I'm going to go into work tomorrow. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the medical stuff that seems like what's going on, it's like, unfortunately, my, my sister and you know, her co has got like a tiny little preview of, of what's happening now, back in 2014. So, uh, that's been like, you know, just on a personal level, like a really sort of weird part of this book that I don't like. <laughs> That you know, it was such a cool thing to be able to work and collaborate with my sister on it and then, you know, have real life get so horrific for her. It's been sort of a little hard to to deal with. Um, you know, we're doing well in Massachusetts now in her hospital. You know, I can't I don't want to say too much because I don't want to get her in trouble. But, you know, they, they put way too much on them in you know when the when we were at the um when we had the surge this year you know they, their hospital became like six floors of icu covid and you know it was still it was too much they didn't have enough equipment they had to do like 12 hour shifts where they couldn't leave if they were doing the icu they'd have to stay there for 12 hours straight that meant like they couldn't go to the bathroom <laughs> had like one one mask so it was just like a a physical trial i mean the good news is that None of her, as far as she knows, no one in the hospital, no one that worked with COVID patients actually caught COVID from them, which is excellent news. But you know, they're all traumatized. They're they're all they're all have PTSD. It's it's not good. Um, you know, she lives in fear of the next wave. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, there was no <laughs> there was no way this wasn't going to go to bummerland at least for part of it. But <laughs> well. uh, yeah. So I mean, that's you know that was sort of the genesis of like how some of what's in the book feels like what we're dealing with now.
0: So the PowerPoint thing jumps out at me as (laughs) um, it's, it's, it's funny to hear that. But at the same time, it's like, to me, the first thing I thought of was, wow, it sounds like this plan is not far off from what me, a complete rube, you know, could put together in a, in an emergency. And like, there is that thing where when something big is going on we tend to have faith that someone has thought it through and figured it out <laughs> and they're supporting right. us so like in the absence of that like uh, morale you know can be a problem and and just sure. like uh you know having faith that like things are going to turn out well which I, you would want you would think you want your frontline people to be um <laughs> enthusiastic and, and uh <laughs> confident as opposed to Terrif- yeah. terrified. So that's, that, that stood out to me as sadly, um, very real feeling. Right.
2: Well, it's, I think what it was, was more of a reflection of, you know, the people making these plans knew that the country wasn't ready for like a huge outbreak like that ah, in terms of fair. personal yeah. protection equipment. Um, cause actually it's funny. I did, I remember when I was doing research, I did find a measure of what you were saying. Like when I was reading the emergency response, like the official plans for this hospital and some other ones. It's like, wow, like people put this together and like, how do you coordinate all this? This is amazing. Like these are adults in charge, you know? (laughs) Um, But you know, like you can make these great plans, but then like when push comes to shove and you're just getting overwhelmed and there isn't, you know, enough equipment and you're not getting the support that you should or any support from the, you know, from a dysfunctional, you know, federal government, I mean, it all goes. To, it all really comes back to our health care system sucks, and my sister's been telling me this for years, and that's not a surprise. But you can see it now, just playing out. Just the lack of centralization. I mean, it's it's beyond crazy that we don't have like a centralized medical health care that everyone has access to. There is no good reason for it not to exist, and you know, more people have died. Then should have because of that, you know. Besides, you know, including the poor response—not and poor isn't the right word—the fucking shitty response by or lack of response by the the federal government, you know, has most of the blood on its hands. But, um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: um, this is not an intentional steering the conversation <laughs> away from this, but the next yeah. question just doesn't have to do with that. So sure
2: no and 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 i would i don't mind like shifting because i've been trying to say like it's weird because you still have to like hey this is a book i hope you guys read it you know because <laughs> right. that's like the first talking point is like some of how how similar it is but it's, like you know i i found that most people who have read the book have, have taken a little bit of hope from it and it's really the focus of the book is more like the friendship and stuff well so, yeah and- uh, i'm happy to move to you know towards away from me just continuing <laughs> to drink beer and swear at the government <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a good point i think that uh me and Livius both acknowledge and i would imagine that um people who have read it um would acknowledge that um the outbreak isn't the story the story is the characters and what they you know what they go through um at least that's how i felt um and so speaking of characters and I'm going to pause to say that like we dis- we decided before uh, we started recording this that um, we're we're probably going to talk about some spoilers a little bit so this yeah. particular question um, might uh, for the people who are listening, uh, I want you to know this 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 might lead into some spoilers so um, at the beginning of the episode, I probably have some sort of like very thoughtful warning about if you don't want the book <laughs> spoiled, skip this part, so it's probably this part. Um, I want to start by talking about, and it's weird because we, we really haven't addressed the main characters of the book mm-hmm. directly, but I want to go to different characters because sure. <laughs> you crossed over two characters from Disappearance of Devil's Rock, and um, it was it was later in the book, and um, there was a lot of, we talked a lot about it in our spoiler talk, which I, I don't know if you had the you you didn't have access to it, so you don't know what we said, but like it was a very exciting part of the book for me to see how you handled that. So um I'm wondering, I know that part of the reason that it was possible was proximity. like this stuff takes place in general right. the same area. but like what led you to want to cross those characters over? And we're gonna have, I'm sure a ton of of uh, follow ups about like what what went down, but where did that start from?
2: Sure. So, I mean, you gave the spoiler warning, so I guess I might as well say their names. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Josh and Luis were two characters in my novel, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, which did take place in the same geographic area. Um, So they weren't, I mean, I guess they got, when I planned the book, they were in there fairly early, but they weren't there right away. When I was like, sort of like planning out the book, it was funny. When I first started playing out the books, like, oh man, this is going to be like a really another heavy, <laughs> kind of like intense book, like Cabin at the End of the World. It was like, you know, I feel like I want a little bit of comic relief in one sense, but also, you know, so I created the super rabies virus. I felt like I had to at least address the zombie word <laughs> in some way. Um, one, because the reader w- would be thinking zombies at some point. And two, if this was really happening, you would have people calling you know, these people infected by rabies, they, you know, they didn't raise from the dead, you know, they're, they're people that just, you know, once they succumb to infection, they're just, you know, their brain is fried essentially. Um, they become violent and, and bitey, shall we say. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so I knew that, you know, there'd be people talking about zombies like, Oh, well then I should, you know, maybe at this point in the book, uh, a cer- at a certain point in the book, I want to have Rams and Natalie meet up with like a couple of self-stylized zombie experts. So once I s- thought that I was like, Oh, I already have a couple of those, and you know maybe they're close by. <laughs> so I was actually really excited to do that. That was a part of the book um, that was sort of fun to do. Um, for for a lot of my my novels, especially, I, I typically imagine like a scene at some point in the book. It's usually past the two thirds point. That's like my carrot at the end of the stick scene. Like, oh man, that's going to be cool. I can't wait to write that part. So I, I always write. My books in the order in which I think it's happening. Like I can't skip ahead. If I did, I would never oh, write wow. the book. Yeah. I would never write all the. I would never write all the hard stuff before. I would just <laughs> go to that part and write it. So, um, the interlude in particular was something I was looking forward to writing. Um, as monstrous as that might make me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I so yes, we we both thought that all of that was handled super super well. Um, the one concern that I had, and I guess I want to get your take on it. Clearly, this wasn't a big concern for you, right? Because you did it the way you did it. Um, Much like I said in our review, like I would have loved to have read this pre-pandemic, right? To get a feel for like the world you're describing, but you you never get to go back and unknow what you know. So I I guess I'm wondering, did you worry at all about people who um, maybe this is the first, your books, they're picking up like not getting why there was a particular focus on these kind of you know walk-on characters.
2: No, I, and I figured. I mean, it really wasn't. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe a tiny little bit. Like the hardest part for me was how much do I hint at their backstory. Um, you know, I, I might give a little of it in the in the in the prelude section of the book, but you know, I was content to have them. You know, I. Listen, Disappearance of Devil's Rock of the William Memorial books, you know, is, is sold the least. Uh, maybe I don't know if Growing Things has sold as much. But anyway, that novel compared to the other ones hasn't sold nearly as many copies. So I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, I, I really don't expect a lot of people to know. Oh, yeah, Josh and Luis, that those are the two guys from you know, the two friends from Disappearance of Devil's Rock. So that really wasn't a huge concern for me. Um, you know, and once I got into the book their role the importance of their role sort of crystallized to me in this way like once I knew the book was going to be about really about the friendship of Ramola and Natalie I thought it was important to have another friendship like those two friends that to, to juxtapose with so you know because here are Ramola and Natalie in their you know mid early to mid 30s they're adults you know they've lived adult lives for a while um, you know and their friendship is you know much more mature it's had like it's had those intense moments, those intense peaks where, you know, they're new friends and, you know, that's like new friendships start off really intensely, almost just like a romantic relationship when you first have one or when you're first entangled with whoever your partner is, um, you know, but friendships have these interesting sort of like ebbs and flows where like maybe you don't see your friend for a little while or you're not as close as you once were, or maybe it's a relationship where even if you don't see them for like a year or two, you pick right up where you left off and it, and it doesn't feel awkward at all. So I liked having the idea of these lifelong friends, you know, with, with those sort of, you know, different, I won't say high and low points, but those, you know, different, I guess I will high and low points, you know, in their relationship already sort of pre story and have them, you know, they get to see how Josh and Louise were probably acted like they did when they were that age, you know, that sort of like fresh, strong, we're friends forever. will I'll do anything for you kind of thing where like when Josh and Luis make decisions about like each other, there's no hesitation, you know, and then actually, um, you know, in some ways, maybe he leads, or we're talking spoilers, maybe leads leads their downfall a little bit. Whereas Ramola and Natalie, I mean, there's a lot more history, but it's also each question about, you know, particularly with Romola, like the moral questions she faces and perhaps fails, depending on your point of view, like, you know, how far is she going to go to try to help Natalie? You know, uh, you know, is she going to break some social contacts? Um, I thought those were really hard questions, you know, that I posed to Ramola. Um, and, then, you know, it's been funny to see some readers talk about, like, what Rams, you know, eventually does or, or needs to do. And, like, I don't know, like, if you're in that spot, it's a hard question to ask if you'd be, you know, would – be able just to say, Oh no, I definitely wouldn't do what Romola did, or I would definitely do for my friend, what Ramola did, um, you know, just even in terms of, you know, how she gets her from place to place. So anyway, sorry, is that is a little bit rambly, but yeah, I, I like the idea of having, like, at least for a moment, those two sort of different sets of friends were, you know, you could almost view Josh and Louise as what Ramola and Allie were probably like when they were like, you know, first met in college.
0: So, looking at kind of the flip side of that um when i figured out what you had done by bringing over these characters that had already existed somewhere i get excited i like those types of things and obviously so i pulled out at some point my copy of disappearance of devil's rock because we read it when it came out so you know i i think we even joked in our our review that you know probably 90 books have come in between those two (laughs) so i needed a little refresher but um my question is because i thought it was great and i feel like um whether it was intentional or not this book gives these two characters an opportunity to get something that maybe they didn't get in the original story that they showed up in so was that were you were you being we kind of doing a favor for these characters by giving them (laughs) a little like uh extension into another story or was it just they they it happened how it did because they got kind of a maybe some closure a little bit Hmm. in a way
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily thought it in those terms. I I just felt like this is the extension of their story, you know, and if they're put into this situation, this is, you know, what happens. Um, And clearly what had happened in Disappearance of Devil's Rock, you know, weighed on them and changed who they, and changed who they are and who they were. Um, you know, and whether or not that's like some sort of redemption or something, I, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily think in terms of like justice and redemption, um, it's funny, I've had like some amazing conversations with you know a writer that we all love, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, where you know he for, for so many horror stories, including his own, he's thinking in terms of justice, like oh this person made this bad decision, you know they have to have sort of their comeuppance or some sort of justice. um I was like, huh, like because even when he read like he, he read an early version of this, like he was the beta reader for me for this book, um and some of the stuff he said, oh, yeah, you know Ramola made this decision so I was kind of expecting something like this to happen to her. <laughs> and mm-hmm. It was just—it was—it was really interesting to hear him talk about it in those terms because I don't—I don't know. I just don't think of—I know he's like in some ways, like he's putting like the slasher sort of rules on things that he loves to do. Yeah. <laughs> um. And obviously there's a lot more going on too, and you know what he's doing. But that I felt like he was talking about the book in terms of like the slasher, and I don't know. I just didn't think that way. Some of it is just. Um, you know, I I don't want to say like I follow where the characters go because I had a, a very you know rough idea. I I sort of knew what was going to happen to Jocelyn Louise, but I you know so I know what's going to happen to them, but I don't know what they're going to say. Like I don't know what they're going to do in the moment necessarily. If that makes any sense. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, so they're what like thirteen going on fourteen in Devil's Rocks are here. They're like eighteen ish. Well, they're, you know, they were still different, same, but different. You know, and part of it was I just wanted to, you know, figure out what they were going to do.
1: <laughs> so the story takes place over, as you said, four to six hours. Um, is it a lot harder to create a story that you think people will connect with that takes place in six hours versus? you know, weeks or, or, or months, you know, in, in some cases in your other books, you know, the, the timeframes have been a lot longer. So what, what are the, the pitfalls or, or benefits, I guess, to compressing, you know, the same 300 ish pages, whatever (laughs) it is into five hours versus three weeks.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all hard. I don't find any of it easy. Like whether it's funny not this new book that I'm working on, is going to span like you know thirty years, and I'm having after the last two books, this you know this one and cabin at the end of the world. You know, cabin was really only over like what thirty six hours, and this was I'm having. I feel like I'm having a hard time going to oh, like I can't write down every single you know event that's happening. I'll this is going to be like a thirteen hundred page book. Otherwise, and I certainly don't want that to be the case. Um, so I don't know. I think that the challenges were, like, since I'm essentially doing it real time, like, I had to almost, like, describe everything that was happening. I really didn't skip forward much at all, maybe, like, 15 or 20 minutes at one point. So it was, like, this weird balance, like, well, something crazy can't happen every second of uh, every moment, you know? So it's, like, how do I get from here to here by using some of the more mundane moments But, you know, the hope was that the mundane moments wouldn't feel mundane because, you know, yeah, they're going to a hospital, but it's a different kind of going to a hospital. Or, you know, just even some of the conversations that they have hopefully felt a little bit weightier because the reader was given this ticking clock at the beginning of the book. You know, Natalie is bit. Um, The likelihood is that she'll be infected in a shorter period of time. And once the virus passes through the brain... There's no cure. So, you know, I I think that's sort of the helper is the ticking clock. Or as I I think it was um, uh, Hitchcock who talked about, like, you know, put a bomb under the table. And that's suspense, right? Because the reader knows and we know that's going to go off at some point. And even though it's you spend all these pages or all this time and the bomb hasn't gone off yet, you're getting more tense because you know it's coming. So I think in a book like that, you know, I tried as much as I could to use what the reader knows is coming against them a little bit or, or with them. Like I I don't want to say like my readers are enemies. You guys aren't my enemies. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's good to hear. To to try to, to try to, you know, try to keep everybody coming along, you know? So maybe that gives you the, the time to, to go back and do like a tiny little bit of backstory. Um, you know, as long as you're not there too long, I think the hopefully the readers go with you because they know once you come back to reality, it's back to sort of that pressure cooker.
0: One of the things that I feel it did, at least from my reading experience, was um it put a lens on priorities that I don't really usually have to think about in stories. And so for two two very different examples would be um like how little time she has to think about the fact that her husband was just killed was like the 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 amount that, that doesn't show up because of everything else that's going on like kind of reminded me of like how crazy the situation was that they were in. But then the other part was um, being affected and fearing for her mortality uh, and being super pregnant, like her trying to find a way to get some sort of information to her baby just in case. And so like those, um, the app, I thought that was a great device for first of all, making me cry like a child <laughs> um and second of all just like um just just kind of showcasing how insane of a situation that that those those characters are in
2: yeah thanks it's funny that was probably one of the things i struggled with like how much emotion to show over her lost husband um i think in the first draft i i probably put i i didn't put enough i certainly i didn't put enough in like my editor kept saying yeah, don't you think she'd be thinking about her husband here or <laughs> at a certain point? Like, yeah, I guess so, maybe. <laughs> you know, I didn't want her to be pining for her dead husband the whole book either. So, I mean, yeah, that was kind of hard to, to balance. Um, thank you. I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed the diary app uh, Voyager, or Voyager, I guess. If she says it in French. Um, <laughs> so p- part of the role of that was, like, I knew that the point of view of most of the story was going to be from Romola. And part of that was like, I didn't want to be telling the story from, I didn't want to be telling like big swaths of the story from the point of view of a pregnant woman. Cause part of it is was like, ah, you know, I'm, I've never been an eight and a half months pregnant woman and I would never pretend to be otherwise. But I felt like I could dip into her diary entries where she's talking to her child. Cause that was more, of a parent talking to a child that they haven't met yet. And I felt like, I, you know, I could maybe pull that part of it off. Um, you know, so, you know, just to get, you know, that I thought it was a, a, a good way maybe to, to break up the narrative. So it's not all third person. I don't know. And I'm a sucker for <laughs> trying to squeeze in different narrative sort of forms when I can. <laughs> um, and I lo- and I like first person. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get to sneak some first person in here too.
1: Well, it is quite the juggling act because then you have a short time frame to make us care about the relationship of Romola and Natalie, who you know we barely mentioned. Now, half hour into talking about the book, so um, you mentioned you know that they're longtime friends and stuff. Again, I mean, is there a challenge there? I mean, I think that you did a good job with with delivering um, a, a very um, a very good picture of their relationship. Um, but again, I mean, you have to do this while you're, you know, juggling, introducing us right. to a pandemic, um, Natalie trying to establish a, a form of future communication with with her child. You know, I mean, how, I, I guess, you know, I asked if it was harder or easier and it would strike me that you have more to juggle in, in a short period of time where, you know, again, if this took place over the course of years, we could see snippets of their friendships and we can kind of get where they're at. But you've got five hours to do it so how how do you how do you how do you do all that all at the same time
2: um well thank you um i would say like one of the other things going in going into the book um that i knew i wanted to try to do that was in this case different from the prior books my first my three prior novels all dealt with you know all featured families in different forms of distress um yeah. So I guess, well, I mean, Natalie hasn't had the kid yet. So <laughs> although she is talking to her, so we sort of have an almost family, but I was like, Oh, instead of dealing with like fraught familial relationships, um, you yeah, know, how about a friendship? Um, just, I mean, just for, for me to be different than the, the three prior novels. So that was definitely, you know, something I wanted to try and focus on in this book. Um, yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I actually, I thought it was just for me fun just to kind of think about like the friendships that I had in college, because for me, college was was the time that I sort of blossomed and, you know, figured out who I was. Like I had a miserable, miserable experience in middle school and high school and um, college is where I really felt like I, I discovered myself and, and, you know, I made some great friends, you know, so I that that's refle- I think reflected hopefully in the beginning of their relationship Um in terms of the other parts of it it's you know it's hard to describe you know you just kind of in some ways i feel like i still just go by like feel <laughs> so often it's, you know i can't exactly explain why um you know just learning that you trust your your subconscious as a writer and it, it's a hard thing to do it's taken me i don't know 20 years to get to this point i guess you know when you trust your subconscious and like you put things into a book and you're not even sure why it's there initially. You just trust that it's okay, and then hopefully, at some point before the end of the book, you figure out why you put it in there. And if you can't figure out why, then you know that's the stuff that you cut, or or if you figure out, ah, eh, you know that doesn't really need to be there; it doesn't serve the story. Um, I don't know. So for for me, it was a you know a balance of like how much backstory do I give? I mean, that can be obviously really annoying if you're flashbacking and stuff like that. But I hope I hope it felt a little bit less flashbacky and more sort of part of what they might actually be thinking about at that moment in time or something like that.
0: So um, just a thought I had as you were, as you were talking uh, is cause I was trying to think of other friendship based stories and stuff that I'd either read or seen. and And it's something that I've been thinking about lately. I'm forming an opinion on and it's not <laughs> like fully formed, but I found that, of of the stories that I see where it's like a best friend situation, um, a lot of times you see it told as almost in the same structure as a romantic relationship, but obviously without the romance aspect. Um, so, like, mm-hmm. you know, they have a fight and they don't talk. That's like a breakup. Like, you know, there's there's similar right. parallels and stuff. And I found that for some reason I can accept and invest myself more in a friendship relationship story than I can in a romantic relationship relationship story and you're seeing a lot of the same beats but it just seems like for some reason it's easier to to get into and so that has nothing to do with like (laughs) what you were talking about with your book but it just it occurred to me that like the friendship narrative seems more approachable uh sometimes than if it was two people who are uh like romantically like invested in each other, so uh, just just a thought yeah. off the top of my head. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's. I mean, most of us have more than one friend or more than one friend that we're close to. So you know, yeah. I feel like there's maybe more acceptance to different types of friendships or, or different ways friendships happen, or different ways they they end, different ways they you know they keep going. Whereas, like if you know, if you're in a long term. Romantic relationship, and you're reading something about a relationship, you're like ah, it doesn't, it's not like mine, or it's not like that. I don't know. Um, yeah, like the the friendship relationships are really interesting because, in some ways, like you know, in a family relationship, you have no choice. <laughs> They're your sister, your brother, your mother, your father. <laughs> I mean, you can choose to not talk to them or something like that. I mean, which is obviously interesting to to write about. Um, but you know, you have no choice in those relationships. And and maybe even some people feel like in a romantic relationship they fell in love with somebody. I mean, the idea of falling in love with someone almost like takes away the idea of choice. I'm not saying that you know clearly there is (laughs) choice there, but the the romanticized version of of some relationships is oh I fell in love it was uncontrollable love at first sight right? right. A friendship's different. A friend is is there's choice. There's you know at least it's how it's usually talked about and presented that there's clear choice. You know, a, you know, a friend can be family that you choose. So, um, yeah, and there's all sorts of friendships you can have. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of interesting ways you could potentially go with it. It's a, even though I saw a reviewer, I, yeah, she did an amazing job reviewing it. You know, it was talking, you know, called Rams the Samwise of the book. And uh, <laughs> Nat- Natalie's Ramon, like, ah, oh, she's right. Damn it. But I wasn't even thinking in those terms but it's true. All friends are Samwise and Frodo.
0: <laughs> That's terrifying.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask this next question. I know to anybody who hasn't read the book, this is going to sound like a spoiler and it's really not. I'm just going to ask, um, what's up with the vampire rabbit?
2: <laughs> um, so p- part of like, even part of like Romola being from, or being born in England originally, um, was a way to sort of honor that I got the idea for this book when I was in England. Um, and I was in England for the first time in my life in this, in July of 2018. Um, you know, it was the first time off North American continent. I mean, I got my first passport in 2016, a week after Trump got elected, <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So like my British publisher had me over for, and sort of an old school book tour and it was unbelievable. It's like one of the best things I've ever done in my professional career. Um. And one of the first, so I let me think. I'm trying to think of the timeline here. So anyway, so like I land in London, but then I'm like I, they sort of take me away to the Midlands for a, a little convention, like a two day convention in 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 uh, in Derby, and then shortly after that we go up to Newcastle, which is where some of this book eventually or is referenced because Is Romola is sort of from that area. Um. So one of the things I really didn't know much about is like my mom, so my mother's father. She talked about a lot, you know, he's Irish. He's from Ireland. Her mother is from England, which I knew, but she's like, Oh, she's from the North of England, South Shields. I'm like, Oh, so when I was going to make the trip. South Shields is only like, you know, a short tube ride or, or, or train ride from Newcastle, which I was going to be for, for part of the trip. And so my publicist, Lydia, you know, who I consider a very close friend now, um so yeah, she allowed me a little side trip to to South Shields it was just really cool um you know to see is like hey my grandmother's from South Shields <laughs> you know I never thought I'd you know ever be here um so we go back we come back to South Shields and I'm in Newcastle and this is like an instance where like the internet is actually a cool place i mean it can be cool a lot of times it's just a hellish cesspit but an, an example <laughs> of the internet being like wow this is amazing I happen to tweet out, "Hey, I'm a Newcastle doing a signing tonight." Blah blah blah, and some you know random person tweets back to me. He's like, "Hey, when you're in Newcastle, you should go see the, you should go see the Vampire Rabbit." I was like, <laughs> "I tweet back, huh? What?" And He sent the link, <laughs> and there's the Vampire Rabbit of Newcastle. It's this little gargoyley statue thingy that sits above like a, a door that's facing a church, and <laughs> and it is what I said. It looks like it looks like a. Va- it's got like teeth and. Red teeth and claws and it's got big hair ears. More, I guess, more a hare than a rabbit. I suppose, but we'll call the vampire rabbit. And it looks like a vampire rabbit. No one's quite sure. No one's quite sure why it's there or why it looks like that. There's theories, but no one has been able to say definitively why this thing is there. Um, so with all that sort of Englishness rattling around my head, I, you know, I with so I made Romola B from South Shield slash Newcastle and and I uh, managed to work in a reference to the vampire rabbit too.
0: <laughs> you know that people are like, or at least me and Livia, when we we're talking about it. We we're like, what's with the rabbit? Like we're trying to figure out if there was like a significance to the story. So it had yeah. to be one of the questions that we asked um, when we talked to you. you
2: well, know, like vampire rabbit, babies, you know, teeth. It's all, it all, it's makes all, sense. It all fits together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, moving away from the the book, unless there's something else that you want to talk about with the book. I had a question about something that recently popped on my radar was uh Sure. You are very you, you tweeted about um your new three book deal with William Morrow um which so first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um and my first thought cuz is the way that you you phrased the tweet was it was pretty grateful. Um and so <laughs> My thought is, is it helpful to uh, continue working with a publisher that you're comfortable with? Like, does that um, does that matter in your in your process? Because um, it seemed like you were happy that like this is the direction you're going in.
2: Oh yeah, it means. Uh, I mean, so like I've only been with two different large publishers. It didn't work out spectacularly, <laughs> and I mean that it didn't work out, comma spectacularly. Like it, it worked out. <laughs> It, poor, it worked out poorly with my first go with a big publisher. Um, you know, and part of that was the publisher was in flux. My acquiring editor left for another publisher at some point. And once that happens, you kind of screwed as a writer. Um, you know, the editor they assigned to me was wonderful. She was an amazing editor. But, you know, they're not – if you get assigned an editor, the editor – you know, their personal or professional reputation is not ex- – is not at stake anymore. Like if your book doesn't sell well, it doesn't really reflect on them. Cause eh, you know, it wasn't my, that wasn't my book anyway. Um, so no, I just, I mean, it just reflects that I feel like amazingly lucky to be with like my editor, Jennifer Brell. I mean, she saved my career. Um, you know, I wrote some good books. I mean, a head full of ghosts is a, I'm very proud of that book. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great book if I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> you know, I feel like I got lucky. You know, that the idea just happened to fall into my lap. But, you know, she was the one that took a chance when a lot of people wouldn't because my prior sales record was bad. And that was a giant hurdle to to getting the, the head full of ghost deal. I mean, I don't know if I told you guys the story before, but when we were pitching that book, you know, my editors, you know, I mean, my uh, agent, Steven's great. You know, he's always very honest with me. He's like, hey, this is a really cool book. Um, or he, he loved the book. He's like, it's a great book you know, but it's horror and your sales record's going to be a hurdle, which I knew, like he, he didn't even have to tell me that within, uh, within like two weeks of going out, we had, he had seven different editors express interest in the book. And some of them were like pretty big editors at some really large houses. And in a matter of like three or four days, all seven backed out. And, and, and I know it's be, partly, I, and I know it's, mainly because like all their sales departments because these you know publishers have sales teams that they have to you know pass things through and their sales teams like yeah horror and his sales records really bad so I, you know yeah no um and that was to me that was like the lowest low of my person of my professional career is when we had seven really exciting editors interested and then 4 days later everyone backed out um, but we Stephen went out again and then um, Jennifer got it. and I talked to her on the phone for like 20 minutes, asked me if I would change one tiny little minor thing. And I said, oh yeah, totally. And two days later, she had an offer. Um, and I mean, and if that was the only thing she did, she'd save my career. But just with every book, I mean, I I, I I, think of her as a partner. I mean, we just work so well together. She's When she sends me edits, they're not like like an English teacher. is like, oh, you got to change this. I mean, she really sort of like, helps draw solutions out of me um you know especially with something like disappearance of devil's rock i feel like of all the novels like i feel like i've handed her like a couple of books that have been fairly clean (laughs) but that one when i handed to her i eventually said i essentially said help Um, but even then you know she would never she was never prescriptive she'd be like okay you know i remember vividly we had lunch i happened to be in the city and we were talking about the book and some of the edits and she asked me about the certain thing that I had at a certain way in the first early draft. She's like, okay, well, why, why is this happening? And I would explain why I did it. And she would just kept picking at it. Just kept asking me. And I walked, I remember I walked to the bathroom and as typical, I don't know, it's weird, but usually when I'm in the bathroom or taking showers, when I solve problems, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, Oh yeah, yeah, she's right. I'll do this instead. And I came back and I was like, Oh, all right, this problem is going to be fixed. Um, so, you know, the, so that part of it is, you know, I just feel super lucky, you know, to be with Jennifer and William more. And I, just, you know, feel super lucky in general. Look, the truth is there are so many, so many books, excellent books being put out and so many talented writers, you know, who don't get the chance that I got or don't even get two chances. You know, some of that is obviously, you know, cisgendered white male privilege. You know, I would never say that it doesn't play a part of it, but. You know, some of it is, you know, just dumb luck too. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I never would ever dream to be like to to say that. Oh no, I deserve all of this. <laughs> no, I'm a talented. Writer. I mean, I mean, I would say like I'm. A, I feel like I'm a talented writer and I work my ass off. But at the same time, it still takes it still takes like fortune and luck. So, uh, it's a big, rambling answer just to say no. I'm certainly super, very thankful and fortunate to to be able to have another deal with William Morrow.
1: So one of the books has a name. <laughs> it does. And it's called The Pallbearer's Club. So, it, so two questions, two-part question. Um, first sure. of all, there was a joke Rob tried to pull before we got you on about <laughs> the name of it, like naming a character in your most recent book after yourself, The Pallbearer's Club. Uh-huh. Um, so, I wanted to publicly shame Rob with that joke, even if he wasn't going to be on the podcast.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you murdered um, so, the delivery. Like, yeah, that's yes. Yeah. yeah all right, that's
1: fair. <laughs> um, so is that the next thing we'll be seeing from you? And can you tell us anything about that?
2: Sure. Um, it, it's okay, Rob. I had a, someone else like on Twitter, like right away. I was like, Oh, the Polar Bears Club. You know, and puns about my name, like that's the whole book is just puns about Paul and the Paul Bearers Club. Um,
0: (laughs) We're all the Paul Bearers uh, Club if we read your books. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, well, the title comes from like an actual Paul Bearers Club. It didn't necessarily mean my name, but I will say, and I haven't really said this anywhere else, that (laughs) um, the book is... It's going to be presented as sort of like a faux memoir. That's sort of like the idea is it's a faux memoir from this from the main character. Um, and the main character basically has large portions of my high school existence. And that it like the split between me and this main character is sort of like, oh, like I'm almost imagining what would be like an alternate path that I might have taken <laughs> if like this really bizarre stuff had happened um so there is like i'm putting in a lot of like personal stuff and mixing it in with a ton of fiction too um and i don't know part of the reason like this idea like appealed to me was that like i sort of had the idea for this book in the fall but um you know i let it sort of like roll around in my head for a while before you know sitting down to write anything um and part of the appeal of the book was, oh, man, Cabin <laughs> and Survivor Song were so, like, of of this time, like, you know, very sort of purposely politically aware of, what, of what's happening, uh, I guess would be a good way of putting it. You know, I, I wasn't saying, like, I knew the pandemic was coming, but there's certainly some political <laughs> talk in that book. And uh, it's like, oh, Paul Bear's Club is going to be sort of a little bit of a look back and take more sort of like personal thematic concerns because it's really it's going to start in 1988 and maybe eventually work its way up to like 2017 or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, I hope to finish that by like, and you know, th- there is going to be some sort of ambiguous supernatural element to it. Um, I-, I won't say what that is yet, though, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I hope to finish that within the next year and it'll be out in the summer of 2022. Um, I guess the next thing that's coming out though, is, uh, William Morrow is actually going to re-release my two, uh, detective novels, The Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland. Nice. And they're gonna, Very yeah, cool. they're gonna put those out in, uh, early 2021, as long as we're all still alive. <laughs>
0: But that's not so. That's not part of the three three book deal, right? That's that is separate? not
2: part of the three book deal. That is separate. Yep.
0: So, um, the uh, so the article I read so Paul Bearer's Club is is locked in. Uh, it mentioned a short story collection, but then mm-hmm. there's also an untitled novel. And if you haven't right. decided what that story is yet,
2: I'm just gonna not. say
0: Paul, a horror story involving podcasters who review books. You know. <laughs> I don't think anybody's done that yet, so.
1: Yeah, interesting. I wonder why nobody's
0: done that. Maybe. That's crazy, yeah. And then the next time you're on, you're like, and that's what ruined my career.
2: (laughs) I will will think on that one, Rob.
0: (laughs) Please save yourself, save yourself. (laughs) This is probably
1: the hardest um, shift that we're taking as we kind of get into wrapping this up. So um, we just reviewed uh, Zoya Stage's Wonderland, and I couldn't help but notice that you're thanked in the acknowledgements for that. Um, how did how did she come on your radar? She's like my, and probably Rob, like one of our favorite, I'll say new authors. I know this is her second book, but I couldn't be more excited about somebody than I am about mm-hmm. her. So I guess I'm kind of curious how you became involved with with Zoya.
2: Jeez. Um, well, I read and blurbed Baby Teeth. I, I, I was sent an arc. Did I blurb it? Yeah. I must have. I'm sure. I think if it made it to the cover or not, but I definitely got an early copy of Baby Teeth and read it and sent like, you know, a glowing bl- uh, a glowing blur because it was you know a really cool book. I don't know. I'm just like some of us, the usual like, hey, you know, just strike up a conversation on Twitter, um, you know, and then in a way, she she ended up having to go through unfortunately a little bit of some of the I don't want to call them growing pains because that sort of implies a problem on the writer's part, but like. You know, I mentioned some of the difficulties that I had with my first go with the big publisher, you know, for, you know, she had some things going on behind the scenes that weren't going the way she wanted to. Um, And so, I don't know. So, I mean, I don't want to say too much, but she, she now, she, she ended up um, hiring my agent, Stephen, as her agent as well. Um, You know, and really the only, I mean. She did all the hard work. I just, you know, I put in a good word with her to my agent. I said, hey, you know, she, her work is excellent. You know, she's a really cool person. You know, she sends you something. You should read it. <laughs> was essentially what I said to Stephen. Um, you, know, you know, I say that to st- stuff like that to him all the time. Um, but I joke, and it's not really a joke. I think I'm I'm now like two for 15 and recommending people to my agent. <laughs> um, you know, because he has his taste. Like he has to, you know, he's going to take on who he thinks he can sell so um you know she she is a client of his because she's a really talented author and like he really liked her book and thought that they could work well together so I mean she by far has done and continues to do all the hard work I'm I'm guessing that's a little bit of what the uh I guess the acknowledgement is my pre-order of Wonderland is not here yet so I will so you haven't read it yet no no Oh Um, man! yeah I pre-ordered it it's yeah, you know, I think I pre-ordered it from into your bookshop, so I know it takes a little bit longer to get here, but it'll get here.
0: Um, I, I so this month is um, the month of stuff that we've just been waiting for forever. So like obviously, Survivor Song dropped. Um, we just did uh, a review of Wonderland earlier this week, and then mm-hmm. we've got Mallory, the Josh Mallerman book coming up, and yep. then Stephen Graham Jones has the Only Good Indians. Um, which is amazing yep yeah so like july has been something that we've been looking for it was the carrot you know for like for essentially (laughs) pandemic and so yeah. yeah it's uh it's nice to have just this like thick amount of awesome stuff to read all at once
2: i know i mean i have so many i've ordered so many books for this i mean i don't know if every single one of these books were well, I know Stevens wasn't Stevens was supposed to come out in like April or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I know like some yeah. books got pushed to July based on what was going on. Um, but yeah, it's just, there's an insane amount of like really good books out now. Um, wasn't July, but ju- you know, June 30th, Silvia Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic. Um, I'm looking forward to S.A. Cosby's Blacktop Wasteland, which came out, um,
0: yeah, this that just too. dropped. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, No, it's uh, Colin Dickey. I got to read an early copy of it. I think it comes out the same day as Josh's book. You know, he wrote, oh, shoot, what's the title of it? Something Unexplained. Colin Dickey wrote one of my favorite nonfiction books of the last, like, 10 years. It was called Ghostland. Um, And he goes into, like, six or seven, like, quote-unquote hauntings. And, like, when you first pick up the book, you think, oh, it's going to be sort of like a fun, you know, almost like, a fun, literary, smart, like, sort of version of watching, like, Ghost Hunters on TV. But it's not. It Like, gets into the history of why the story sort of... gets into the history of the place, it talks about why the ghost story sort of cropped up. I mean, and why it's essentially BS. But it's also... It's just really lyrical and really wonderful. And his book about... And Colin wrote a book about... Um, I'm ter- I'm, I feel bad that I forget the title. But he wrote a book about conspiracy theories um the most famous ones essentially that source of still linger um and that that comes out next week too and it's really good i got he, he sent me an arc back in the spring so yeah uh, july is ridiculous with the amount of like really good books
0: that conspiracy theory one sounds like it's right oblivious's alley. That's like his favorite thing to talk about.
1: I love conspiracy theories. They're like, so, it, so you've got two routes you can go. Some you can believe, but the other ones are still like great fiction, even if you don't believe them. So, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like you can't lose with a good conspiracy theory. So uh, is Absolutely. there, is there, is there anything else you want to plug before we uh, let you go for the evening?
2: Ah, uh, geez. I don't know. Oh, I'll, um, you know, I mentioned my good friend John Langan earlier. He has a, a collection called Children of the Fang coming out in August, I believe. Um, you know, anything that John writes is amazing. You should definitely keep an eye out on that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm laughing. Some, it's not in his collection, Children of the Fang, but for Ellen Datlow's final cuts anthology, which came out in June, um, all the stories had to somehow involve a film in some way. Um, it's a really cool anthology, and actually, before I talk about John's story, uh, Brian Hodge has an amazing story that weaves that that talks about a lost Herner, uh, Werner Herzog movie that's no that very few people have seen. And If you're a Werner Herzog fan, you should definitely read that story. <laughs> it's really good. But uh, John wrote this really long novella that ends the anthology, and I'm the main character. Except my name is Gaetan Cornichon. Cornichon is, of course, French for like a little pickle or something like that. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, so the name is very goofy, but the story is um, the story is really good. It's really dark. He actually apologized to me. He's like, "Man, like, sorry. I'm like, what do you mean? This is amazing." Because I end up doing like some pretty awful stuff um, <laughs> as a potential as a vampire, maybe. Because it's about this author Gaetan who who acquires the Dracula ring, this prop that appeared in certain movies and stuff like that. Um, the the funny thing about the story is like a lot of the stories, emails between me and John and like how he captures my voice is almost like a little uncomfortable. It's like, Oh man, am I that easy to like, mm. I was uh, like, Oh, that's, <laughs> that's what I sound like. It was like almost like looking into a a prose mirror. I was like, Oh man. <laughs> um, yeah. So look for John's, you know, I mentioned Sylvia's novel is great. Um, oh, let me mention one more. It's coming in October. You guys have to read this. It's uh, Emily Danforth's Plain Bad Heroines. It's coming in October. Um, and it's like, it's a, it's a big epic novel, but it, it reads so quickly. It's so smart. and so fun. It, it, it sort of reads like, it's sort of like Shirley Jackson mixed with, Mercia Pessel mixed with, Peter Straub's ghost story. How's that?
0: I'm happy with all of that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We, we were just talking recently about how um, we don't want to fall into a rut of just, we know that this is a reliable author and we were going to read all their books. We want to keep bringing Mm -hmm. in fresh people that we're not familiar with. So getting recommendations like this is absolutely super helpful.
2: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, her book is, it's one of my favorites of the year. I think Joe Hill put a blurb on it that like it's his favorite of the last 10. Wow. Um, it's a really, it's a really cool novel.
0: And I think we got to get, so we read um, Langan's book, the Fisher, the Fisherman,
2: the Fisherman. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: and I think we both enjoyed it, but we just haven't gone down that Langan road, I think after that. So I think we got to get back in, in that, in that guy in, in his sphere of what he's up to. <laughs> so yeah anyway.
2: <laughs> it's an it's an interesting sphere the language <laughs> sphere <laughs>
0: um well uh paul thanks again i know that we probably took up like half your night and you're on the east coast so like it's even later for you but um thanks for joining yeah. us thanks for um just putting out such awesome stuff we we always love reading it and we love talking to you so thank you so much
2: no thank you and please i appreciate it um you know it's always fun to talk to you guys you know it's I've only, we've only met in person once, but it feels like we've done it more. And I wish we mm-hmm. have hung out more in person. And we didn't even talk about Will Christopher Bear, like, reappearing on Instagram.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up interview, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that wraps up another excellent interview with Paul. Uh, it's great. Cause he just give him a little bit and he runs with it. And the stuff that comes out of it is, is, is often just really fascinating and, and a great insight into story creation and, and behind the scenes stuff too, this time.
0: Yeah. Um, there are, so we've, we've interviewed tons of authors and we've done multiple interviews with some authors. And so it's like, you get to know uh, kind of the, the flow or cadence of the way someone's going to talk. And I just know with Paul, um, you give him an idea to start with and yeah he just fills it he fills the time very very well um so it's always great to have him on and yeah I like I like the the look not only at the book but also um the publishing industry and one thing that struck me was um how tenuous of a of a grip you can have on the ability to be a successful author that like that gave me a little trepidation. It's like, even if you are the, you could be the best person, you write the perfect book, but if certain conditions aren't right, yeah, someone, nobody might ever read it. So that was, that was an interesting look at the publishing industry side. And even when you are a talent of the stature of Paul, um, besides being six, four, also Mm. the writing stature, um, there's still a lot of factors that are outside of your control that kind of decide whether you're going to be a successful published author or not.
1: Here's um, one of my favorite stories that somewhat relates to to that. And, and specifically, we talked about um, regarding A Head Full of Ghosts. Um, South Park. So I realized you're like, how is he going to transition South Park to A Head Full of Ghosts? I've got it, though. Um, was originally um, shit. I, like, I don't have notes on this. What, what's that? Uh, commissioned. So someone commissioned Trey Parker and Matt Stone to do a like kind of profane, funny um, cartoon, Christmas cartoon that they could send out as a video um, Christmas card. So a bunch of VHS tapes went out with this thing that they did. The person that commissioned them worked for Fox Television. Yet nobody at Fox thought, hey, this is really good. We should talk to these guys about doing a series, right? But <laughs> right. somebody... It eventually ended up with somebody at Comedy Central who said, holy shit, this is gold.
0: So yeah, I'm it was, thinking it was viral. It was getting passed around through celebrities. They were like, oh, yep. you have to check this out. Like Clooney um, yeah. was like, oh, hey, at had a party or something. Check this out.
1: Yeah. So that's a head full of ghosts, right? Like it was put in front of like a lot of influential people that could have delivered a brilliant book that all failed fail to do so and let it go to somebody else who, who wasn't on like the original distribution list for it. So there you go, man. So that's, that's sometimes how it happens. I'm just glad for Paul that, that he found a publisher that, uh, that really supports his work. Cause he does, he's a great storyteller.
0: Yeah. And if you think about it, it's, it's a good thing for all of us, right? Cause we get to read the books yep. and uh, support Paul, I guess. Um, yeah. Excellent interview uh i'm hoping that with the books that we have coming up this month that we'll have the opportunity to do a few more um we just in the previous episode reviewed wonderland by zoya stage but we've got a josh mallerman book coming up we got Stephen graham jones so hopefully in addition to those reviews we'll be able to uh to to bring up some uh, other interviews as well this month
1: and as rob mentioned you can come back in i don't know three or four days and hear our review of mallory by josh mallerman until then, I'm Libya Snedden.
0: And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.